We have a lot of white churches in that section of the state, but we have no like majority African-American churches or historically black churches in those regions. And there's a historical reason that is tied to slavery and tied to segregation. We don't want to have that conversation because that's not the story that we want to tell ourselves. Welcome to the Center for Congregations podcast. This is a conversation for anyone invested in sustaining and strengthening their faith communities. The Center for Congregations is an Indiana nonprofit that exists because we believe the work of your congregation is essential. Our mission is to strengthen your congregation, helping you find the right information or expertise for your congregation's needs. We're able to do this work because of the generosity of the Lilly Endowment. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Center for Congregations podcast. I'm Matt Burke, the Education Director and Northeast Director for the Center. With me as usual is Ben Tapper, who's an Associate for Resource Consulting in the Indianapolis office. Hey Ben. Hey Matt, good to be here. We're going to have a guest on a little bit who is a practitioner of rural ministry and also works in an organization that champions rural ministry, and I think you'll really enjoy that. But Ben, I know you're actually situated in Indianapolis, but the region that you serve is quite broad and goes from the Illinois border to the Ohio border. So what have you seen? What have you heard? What's your experience with rural ministry from where you sit? You know, most of the congregations that I end up having cases with are in more urban contexts. But the rural context and the rural congregations I've come across, they're wrestling with questions of how to stall church decline how to maintain their buildings, even with a decreasing population, how to be of service to their community. A lot of these congregations are small, sometimes, you know, just 10 or 20 people, but they have a heart and a passion for service and a heart and a passion for serving and meeting the needs of the folks around them and the community that they're situated in. And so they're trying to figure out how do we do that? How do we live into our mission with a very limited number of people, a very limited small amount of manpower, if you will. And so those are some of the things that I've come across in having conversations with pastors. I guess the other thing I would name is that a lot of the pastors that are serving rural churches, at least that I've encountered here in central Indiana, are bivocational or they're serving more than one congregation at a time. And so that brings a very different relational dynamic to each congregation and to a different focus to ministry itself. So they're trying to figure out how to lead multiple groups of people at the same time. Even if they're leading more than one church, they may also still have another job on the side as well. And so they're juggling a lot of dynamics as they're trying to be of service to their congregations. Yeah, I've encountered similar things up here, and I think it's incredibly common. In fact, when I was in seminary, the seminary that I went to was lovingly referred to as the only non-Methodist Methodist seminary. <laughs> uh, but it was very common to talk about people graduating, moving into the Methodist church, and having a three-point or four-point or sometimes even five-point charge, mm-hmm. which I didn't know what that meant at the time, but what that means is you're overseeing that many congregations as your job. So that's a relatively common thing. And I know that a lot of the leadership that I've interfaced with, a lot of rural congregations are fortunate if they have a full-time minister and rely very heavily on the volunteerism of the congregation in general. Demographically speaking, what I've also seen is they do tend to trend a bit older. And our guest actually talks about that and talks about some of the positives around that actually and some of the trends there which I thought was really interesting. So I'm excited for listeners to hear about that. 
And I think a lot of the things that we talked about in the interview and a lot of the things that we learn about rural congregations, there's a lot of transference because small congregations in different contexts of urban, suburban, rural share more in common with one another, I think, than what they think they do. So I think a lot of people hopefully will find this episode really helpful because some of the things about rural congregations are transferable to others. Yep, I agree. Yeah, and another aspect of our work is that we have way more contact with congregations that are urban and suburban, probably because our offices are located in those spaces. And, you know, I've noticed that our geographic footprint, we tend to serve those who are geographically closer, not as a matter of preference on our side, but I just think it's a natural thing that when you're in Fort Wayne or you're in Allen County, it's a lot easier to access the center that is in this city. So for those of you out there that are listening from other counties that are further away, maybe right on the borders of other states, et cetera, know that we know you're there and we really want to serve you. And we're trying to find ways to do that. So as we talk about the fact that a lot of small congregations and rural congregations have bivocational ministers who maybe can't come to the Ed events that we do when they're live, we know that and we're working on that. A lot of the events that we're doing now are recorded and up for 30 days, and we're working on even making them accessible longer. We're working on on-demand educational programming. And please know that we are here to serve, even though our office hours typically are during the week, it doesn't mean that we can't connect with you or won't connect with you outside of those hours. So please know that we're here to serve you no matter where you are. And we're really eager to learn more about your congregations, more about what's happening in your spaces, because that helps us and it helps us serve other congregations as well. So we look forward, hopefully, to expanding our reach to those of you who are on the outskirts of cities or in farm communities and learning much more about you and how we can serve you well. Yeah, and I would just add as a quick plug, you know, our offices in Seymour, Indiana and Evansville might be particularly situated to do that and do that well. And they don't necessarily get a lot of shine or get talked about as often, but we do have five offices throughout the state and two of those are in Seymour and Evansville. And so if you find yourself in southeast or southwest Indiana, know that that those are the two offices geographically designed to serve you. So check them out, reach out to them. They would love to build those connections if you haven't been able to make them yet. Yeah, just a reminder that anybody outside of Indiana, you all have equal access through the CRG to the resources that we post there and also to consultants through the chat feature and potentially follow-ups via email there as well. So didn't intend to make this a pitch for the center services and work, but here we are. Uh, but it just, it just kind of naturally led there. But we're here for you. And we had a pretty lengthy conversation with our guest. His name is Alan Stanton. He's the executive director of the Turner Center at Martin Methodist College. So we're actually going to make a lot of space for that because it was a really good conversation and we walked away very big fans of Alan and the work that the Turner Center is doing. So we'll move right into that. everyone. This is Matt Burke, the Education Director for the Center for Congregations. And with me, as always, is Ben Tapper out of our Indianapolis office. Hey, Ben. Hey, Matt. Good to be here. Good to have you here. And with us in this interview is Alan Stanton. He's the Executive Director of the Turner Center at Martin Methodist College, which leads rural congregations in cultivating community and economic development in southern middle Tennessee. And he's an ordained pastor in the United Methodist Church. So welcome, Alan. We're glad to have you. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Alan, we want to talk to you about rural ministry 
Because I think a lot of our listeners, well, I don't know about a lot, but some of them may not be versed in rural ministry and just maybe have kind of a vague notion or vague conception of what that means and how it may be similar to or different from other types of ministry. But let's start with just, you know, your background. Have you always been a part of rural ministry in your life? What brought you to where you're at now? That's a really great question. And the answer I would give to that is I've not by choice always been a part of rural ministry. So I grew up in a small town in Eastern North Carolina. Uh, it was a very rural community. My mom's family grew up there. It's one of those kind of like her mom's family grew up there. So we've always just been there. And growing up, my goal was to get out of that place and never go back to a rural community. So I went to Wake Forest University, majored in political science, double majored in religious studies, which is different from theology. I always have to make that distinction for pastors. And when I was thinking about what I wanted to do with my life, I started thinking about seminary and there was a scholarship available at Duke Divinity School where if you agreed to serve in a rural church for a period of five years, then they would give you a full scholarship and full tuition. So I interviewed for it and I was not really super excited about interviewing for it. It didn't really seem like something I wanted to do in my career. But I also, about that same time, was finishing my like exit paperwork for my undergrad loans. <laughs> and so I had a lot of student loans. And so a full scholarship looked pretty good. So I interviewed. I figured if it was meant to be, then it would happen. And I got the scholarship. I was doing the fellowship program. And a weird thing happened when I got to Duke. So I've always been interested in political science and community development, economic development, public policy. And the language that one of the staff members was using about the rural church was this idea that the rural church is a permanent institution in the community. And the rural church is one of the only places that can really lead community work in a lot of our rural spaces. And so it seemed to be like this really fun intersection of public policy and community development and theology. So I kind of just pursued that and fell into it and fell in love with the idea and the data about how the rural church can be a leader in the community. So I left Duke Divinity School, went and worked at a public policy think tank at NC State University for a year, and then went to go pastor a small membership church and had a great time doing that for several years. And now I'm here in Tennessee. So the rural church has sort of always been part of what I've been in ministry. A lot of it was accidental. And then I sort of found this like great merger of all these interests of mine. And I also really actually do love rural communities. We live in a rural community and we have a really great life here, mostly because it's a lot cheaper <laughs> than living in Charlotte or Durham, where we lived before. And we can have a really good quality of life and be still connected to our friends in urban places. But yeah, it's great. Yeah, thanks for that background. And it's interesting to hear you mention how rural congregations are kind of the center of their communities, because I think, if I understand church history correctly, that really was the case in general for a really long time, but it seems like urban and suburban congregations, that definitely has fallen off the map as the place of the church in the community. So what is it about rural congregations that has kept them more at the center of life in those places? So I think it's an interesting, like, historical, sociological question, like the way the communities form, and so, and the way the denominations form, too. So in the United Methodist Church, our Methodist tradition is that we were a bunch of small chapels spread throughout the backcountry, right? So when Francis Asbury started planning churches, he was very intentional as opposed to like congregational churches, which were rooted in an urban place and supplied by pastors that had graduated from prestigious institutions. Francis Asbury was saying, we want to draw our resources from the center and take it out to the circumference. That's how he framed it. And so what you saw was these small chapels 
popping up everywhere. And those small chapels in turn would provide health care for the community. They would start colleges and start schools. They would lead anti-poverty programs. They led major movements in the 19th century in the U.S., the temperance movement, the abolitionist movement. Like those were led by rural leaders. So part of it is that, like that historical work of the rural church. And the other side of it is in urban places and suburban communities, you just have more permanent institutions. You have more stakeholders. So you have more, what we call them anchor institutions. And so in Nashville, for instance, you'll have several hospitals within a five mile radius. You'll have a lot of corporate headquarters. You'll have a lot of philanthropies. Most philanthropy dollars go to urban and suburban communities in the U.S. You have your public policy offices are rooted in those places. You have universities. So a comparison is in Nashville, which has a population of about 500,000. They have about 20 four-year institutions, colleges and universities in that geographic region. And some are better than others, but like you have Vanderbilt, Belmont College, Rebecca, like all these really great schools. And then down here, when you come down an hour south in this rural community, you have 14 counties with a similar population size, and we're the only four-year institution in that geographic region. So if you drive from pretty much Chattanooga to Sewanee College, Sewanee University, like we're the only other four-year school in that gap. So there's just less permanent institutions. And in a rural community, So you don't have a lot of colleges. You don't have a lot of hospitals. In fact, rural hospitals are closing at a really high rate in our rural places in rural America. Schools come and go. Businesses come and go. Like people aren't really setting up corporate headquarters in rural places. Philanthropy dollars don't flow here. But you do have a lot of churches, right? Like you have a ton of churches. And so just by the way the community formed, those churches have to play a different role. I don't know that the churches always do that very well, but if you want to have the same sort of public goods and social services, it's got to come from some anchor institution. And the only one that's really going to be there is the church on an ongoing basis. We talk a lot about like rural churches declining. One of the things that I think is not necessarily true is that these churches are actually quite permanent. So they might have the same small membership population, but they'll have that same membership for, you know, 200 years. So There's a lot of factors that just sort of come into it where the church still has to play an important role in those rural spaces. You know, it's interesting hearing rural congregations spoken about in that light. And as you were talking, I was thinking about the fact that there's almost an inverse of movement. So in in rural communities, as I imagine them, you have fewer anchor institutions, fewer permanent institutions, but the people are long-term. And then in urban contexts, you have a lot of these more permanent long-term institutions, but people might be more transient coming in and out. So that was kind of an interesting thought that hit me. And I'm wondering, with movement can come change. And in the context of the work that Matt and I do, I've had congregations, smaller rural congregations, talk to me about the struggle and the challenge in managing change in the pastoral leaders face and helping walk their congregants through not just accepting, but even embracing some of the demographic changes a community might be seeing, some of the political shifts and policies that are coming from Washington or the state level. And so what have you observed? How have you observed congregational leaders helping their communities manage change as it is it comes to rural communities? Uh, it's hard, which <laughs> sounds really trite. So one of the things that you see happening in a lot of rural places, not all rural communities. So I want to pause for a second and just, there's a cliche that we throw around in rural development, which is if you've seen one rural community, you've seen exactly one rural community, because we're talking about a huge expanse of America. 
So one of the things that you do see in some parts of rural America is a lot of retirees moving in because the property's cheaper. You are so close to some really nice amenities. Ecotourism is a big thing. And they have, you know, you want to maximize your retirement dollars. And so if you want to do that, you can like buy a nice house in rural America for a lot cheaper than you could buy a nice house in downtown Nashville or Chicago mm-hmm. or wherever. So the hard thing in that though is twofold. So one is that you have people who did not grow up in that community and they're moving in, like you said, and they have a different idea around what that community could be. So the culture inevitably will start to shift and that can kind of, you can almost have like two different communities happening in the same spot. And the other kind of thing with that for pastors is they're not always attuned to those shifts. And so if you have a lot of retirees moving in and they're all of a sudden showing up at your church, you're thinking like, well, I want a stronger youth program, right? Because that's how you grow a church. But meanwhile, you have this influx of retirees. What we've seen work really well is when pastors are like very cognizant of the changes that are happening and the demographic shifts that are happening in their counties and their communities. And they can actually work as a way to integrate people in. As an example, like me and my wife, when we moved here, we didn't know anyone we're not from this state. We're not from this region. Like the only people we knew were the people we worked with and the people that hired us. So when you want to make friends, like when you're not in school, you have to find some sort of way, avenue to like meet people. Well, like the only way to do that is the church, right? Like, so we go to church and we hope to meet other people. If pastors can be really intentional about that, it can help a lot because you can find ways for new people to plug in, not just to the church, but to the whole community. So you can find volunteer opportunities. So like I, was really fortunate that I met and partially through work, but like I'm the CEO of our hospital goes to our church. And so I met him there. And then one of the board members of the hospital goes there. And so I actually ended up hanging out with a lot of healthcare professionals in our community, which was really helpful for the work I do, but like I wouldn't have met them otherwise if it hadn't been for church. So the church can help integrate people in. The other thing I think is really important is if you have a lot of people who are moving in, particularly retirees, having the church be a place that can help these new members of the community both understand the rhythms of that community and then helping them find a vocation, uncover their own vocation for the second part of life, right? So what is it that you actually want to be volunteering in? And what kind of work do you want to do in this particular place? Because this isn't, you know, where you came from and it's not, not going to change, but you do need to find a way, like, what is your vocation here in this space? And then helping the current members also get used to that putting those conversations together, putting these people together, this work of kind of integrating the whole community back and knitting the community together. The church can do that really well in a way that, you know, maybe your Rotary Club can't or, you know, your bank can't. I think that's an important way that they can do it. And I've seen it done really well and I've seen it done really poorly. I think my banking institution would take exception to that, but, you know, I get the point. Your bank might be better than mine. (laughs) Yeah, I appreciate the caveat, Alan, that you need to be careful about painting with a broad brush. And, you know, I've heard it said too, that, you know, small communities, small congregational communities, because they're small, they're much more impacted by the personalities of everyone who's in the congregation, as opposed to like some kind of mega church or larger suburban congregation. And you could have two congregations on the same main street in the same small town, and maybe even the same basic theology, but they would be drastically different in how in their character, in the way that they view themselves, in the way that they view their work in the community. So I appreciate that caution. And it's also interesting because you talk about, you know, their place in the community as anchor institutions. And it's such an important point that you have anchor institutions. But yeah, your hospital is not necessarily going to be the most 
personal place in the world where you go to find relationships and meet people, right? Like you go there because it's a service and you have health needs or the bank, of course. So highlighting the fact that congregations have the unique component to them that they're relational in nature. And I think that's something that all congregations need to remember is that what do you get at congregations that you don't get in other anchor institutions? And it's relationship, hopefully caring relationship, and the ability to care for one another in the community together. Yeah. So I was in a meeting, gosh, it was like three or four years ago now, but there was a rural economic development center that I was working with as a partner. And one of the directors of like programs or something, we were in this large focus group and she leaned over and we had all these people from different sectors. And she was like, you know, it would be really great if we could get all these people from different sectors all in the same room, like on a weekly basis. And I was like, well, I mean, we do, right? (laughs) Like that's, we do that in the church. Because when I show up at church on Sunday morning, you know, when I was a pastor, we were a small membership. We had maybe 50 people on a really great Sunday. But we had a scientist who worked on cancer research with the National Health Institute. You had a retired professor from a university that had moved down. You had local doctors, teachers, x-ray techs, a small business owner. You had a lot of retirees who had these skills. You got a really great mix of people in the community. And on that same point, like there's four really, I think, unique, and it's not just, I think like there's data behind this, but there's really four great attributes of the rural church that you don't necessarily find in other places. And so one is like we've talked about is that this, they're the permanent place, right? They're some of the only permanent institutions. They've been around for a long time, which means that two, they have a long social memory. So they've actually seen the community change. So if you want to know the local history, go to the church find like the lovely old lady who has been there forever and ask her about the history of the congregation and about the history of the community. And they'll tell you a really great story of pain and hope, right? (laughs) Like you find both of it. And I would always recommend like getting those from a lot of different places in the community, not just the one church, go to a lot of different churches and get that and knit the story together. Three, you do have this wide sector of people that come every week that you're not really going to, when I go to work, I work with other college professionals. When I go to church, all of a sudden this like, melting pot of people who have different experiences and expertise. And then four, you know, if you can leverage that, they bring that expertise to church. And if you can leverage that, you can do a lot of high impact, low cost programs because people are more likely to volunteer at their church or give their expertise to the church. And so you can see some of that replicated in like other places, but rural churches are just more trusted. They're still like trusted institutions, whereas the church in general is not always a trusted institution anymore. But in rural communities, like if you want to know something, you're going to ask somebody in your church because you trust the people there. You trust the pastor there. You trust that institution still. I'm curious about your comment about if you talk to someone from the community, there'll be a lot of pain and hope. It seems like there was a lot behind that statement. I'd love for you to unpack that a little bit. There might be a lot behind that statement. So, you know, memories are not always accurate, right? And in every community, you're going to see a bias towards a particular story, depending on who you're talking to. Like it looks different in different places. And so in some communities, you'll have a painful story about like the factory that closed down or, you know, how the economy is changing or how it's growing too much. So the last church I was in, there was a lot of pain around back in the eighties, they had built like a big lake there. And so there was a lot of pain around like how that had shaped the community in a way that they really didn't love. Right. Part of that was because their land was taken under eminent domain. So like they lost a lot of land. Um, that was part of the pain there. But then they're building like these huge shopping centers in the next town over. And they're like, well, that's going to change our way of life. 
So that's like a pain. And then there's these kind of hopeful things about the way the community comes together in certain places. But then there's also these historic realities about particularly down here in the South to Pulaski, Tennessee, our claim to fame, if you Google us, is that we're the birthplace of the KKK, right? So when I walk to church, I walk past the little building where the KKK was formed and there's a whole story about it, but there's a plaque that was like taken off and turned backwards. So like you can't read it anymore because we used to have a lot of white nationalists come down to try to have these not great um, celebrations. There was a whole boycott of where like the town shut down to try to drive them out. But if you go to my church, and this is where I'll get in trouble a little bit, but if you go to my church and you ask people about the story of our community, they'll tell you a really optimistic story of how our community overcame the KKK, right? Which is, and it's a fantastic story. There's a play written about it. I mean, it's really great. And it is really, there's a lot of courage in that story. If you go talk to someone else in the community, if you go talk to one of the African-American churches and and one of the elders of those churches, you're going to get a different version of that story. And it's not going to be as rosy because they're going to remember certain parts of that history that someone at my church is not going to remember. And I think it's really important to get both of those narratives because you can't just have the story of pain and then overcoming. And that's the end of the story. You can't like tie it off that neatly and tidily. So when I talk about pain, like I think that's, that's one of the things I'm particularly thinking of in my context. How do we address those stories of pain and hope in a realistic way? I'm glad that you brought that up because I'm thinking about rural churches through my lens and my experience as a biracial black man. So I went to a college on my undergrad, which, by the way, I have a degree in political science as well. So nice to meet a fellow poli sci major. But I went to a school in a town called North Manchester, which is rural farm town almost in northeast Indiana, when college is in session, you might maybe have seven or 8,000 people in the town. Like it's, it's just tiny. But during the four years I was there, I attended a small Pentecostal congregation. And the beauty of the congregation is that they were so loving and welcoming to college students. Like I met a, a couple there that ended up being like my faux grandparents for that four years that I was there. And I still keep in touch with them, right? They'd invite us over on Sundays for dinner. And just the love that that small community was able to pour out to these kids that were coming from all over the state or country still amazes me. It's wonderful. The tension that I hold in that congregation sometimes and in other rural spaces is just what it's like to be a racial minority in a space that has been and still is predominantly white and a space in which the historic memory feels like it doesn't factor in the experiences of people like me, right? And so I'm wondering, as someone who works with and has had more extensive experience in rural congregations, I wonder what are the conversations like internally amongst rural congregations as they grapple with what it means to maybe have a more well-rounded memory of their specific history? Man, that's a tough question. And I don't have a really great answer for it other than those are difficult conversations. Like we only tell ourselves part of the history. Like when we remember part of our history, we are very self-congratulatory in a way that's not very helpful. And so one of the challenges is how do we get ourselves out of the space so we can like hear another side of the story? And it's really tough work. Like it's hard. And it's, it's work that I think we have to kind of do internally. A lot of my friends will, were talking about like, how do we change perceptions of our own history? And, and how do we understand like the ways that racism is still permeating our community? When you go to the courthouse, I was on a tour and we went down to like the elections board. They have a poll tax, like hanging like the a receipt from a poll tax hanging as a decoration in the registration room. 
um, <laughs> I see your face, and I'm just like, yeah, I'm thinking the same thing. Uh, and my friend's like, isn't that a neat historical artifact? And I'm like, no, that's <laughs> that's not a neat historical artifact. That makes this voter intimidation. Right. <laughs> like, it's, uh, you know, this official was like, maybe we need to have poll taxes again. And I'm like, that's unconstitutional. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but like, launching that conversation that's a hard thing to like that's and i'm not saying it's hard that we shouldn't do it i'm saying like you're gonna get some really intense stares one of our jury rooms was donated by the daughters of confederacy like uh, daughters of confederate america right so the jury room where people go deliberate cases is decked out in artifacts from the civil war and confederate flags right wow. so <laughs> a friend of mine's a lawyer and he's angry about it right because when he has a client you know, you're going into this room and you have an all white jury or you have one black person on the jury and you're thinking that that's not going to sway the conversation in the room. Right. Like, of course, it's going to sway the conversation in the room. Outside the courthouse is the statue of Sam Davis, who is this boy hero. And there's like Sam Davis Park. There's the Sam Davis statue. There's the Sam Davis Memorial where he was either caught or hanged or something. Mm. And it's easy to push the, all that aside. And then you look at well, look, you know, but we overcame the KKK back in the 1990s. I haven't given you a good answer at all, other than to say, like, there's a lot of work to do. I think one of the things that is really incumbent upon those of us who are in white churches is to start building relationships into African-American churches. I hear a lot of pastors be like, we need to have, like, more interracial worship services. And I always kind of push back against that to be like, well, no, like, we need spaces where people can be their own people. Mm -hmm. Like, like the culture. And one of my townspeople like was complaining that we've systematically gotten rid of places where black people in the town hang out and congregate. And we've systematically destroyed those. So the most recent one being the pool. So we're putting in a splash pad instead of a community pool. Mm-hmm. And somebody was like, well, why don't we all want to hang out together? And she was like, no, <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like, don't. <laughs> like, I get that, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, that's one side of it. And I think the other part too is, a much longer historical narrative in North Carolina is that North Carolina is a fairly diverse state, particularly rural America, like the rural parts of North Carolina. So over in the Northeastern part of North Carolina, those are historically the counties that are majority African-American, right? Hmm. We have either one or like none United Methodist churches in those counties. All of our United Methodist churches are over in the Western part of the state. And there's reason historically that that happened so whenever we talk about racial justice, I think one of the things that we have to bring up is we're not even in this, like we don't have a presence here, right? <laughs> like yeah. We have a lot of white churches in that section of the state, but we have no like majority African-American churches or historically black churches in those regions. Then there's a historical reason that is tied to slavery and tied to segregation. We don't want to have that conversation because that's not the story that we want to tell ourselves. So I have not answered your question at all, other than to say we have a lot of work to do uncovering the tension to start with just because it hasn't been told. I just appreciate that you're naming the tension because I think, and this isn't just something that rural congregations or even congregations do. I think broadly, as people, as a country, it is hard to hold the tensions that exist in our history, right? Whether you're looking at the national history, a state's history, a family's history, it's always a hard thing to do. But I appreciate it being named because to me, the naming of that tension offers possibility for a different future, right? And so, again, just personally, when I walk into a rural space, a predominantly white rural space or a rural congregation, I wonder if they're aware of my discomfort, right? Because if they're aware of it, then maybe then we can like meet 
in that discomfort and figure out a way forward. But if they're not aware of it, then there's no hope for that. And so to hear someone that actively works with rural churches and congregations name not only the beauty and the security that rural congregations offer their communities and the stability, and also name the tension that exists within rural congregations in terms of being honest about history, that to me says, okay, there are people thinking about this, aware of this, so there's a new path forward that is then possible. And that's that's a wonderful thing, I think. That's good to hear. I mean, like... We just haven't done the work that we need to have done in this. And I'm really grateful. Like my friend Kelly is a public historian and I think like she's really doing amazing work in this, right? Like part of what she's trying to capture is, look, we need to actually capture the history that's not documented or recorded on paper. And those are the oral stories that are not being told. And so one of the things that we don't talk about is why the KKK formed in our community, which was when we were after the civil war, we were guarded, like the guards from the Union who were stationed here were all freed slaves. Mm-hmm. And they were the ones that were patrolling the streets, right? <laughs> so mm-hmm. the KKK sprung up in protest to that. So there are people that try to whitewash that history too. And they'll be like, well, it started out as like a literacy program. I'm like, no, <laughs> like, it was always tied. That's not, that's not true. Um, these are conversations we've actually had to have. Mm-hmm. Um, but like Kelly's doing really amazing work in capturing like not just the rosy picture of history, but like the really gritty truth is there. And I love to go like tour public places with her because she'll point to things that are uncomfortable. We went to the courthouse one time and, and our courthouse is just like really grand granite structure. Like, I mean, it's beautiful. And in the middle of the courthouse is a water fountain. Like in the middle of the rotunda is this like porcelain water fountain that was put there when the courthouse was integrated so that it was a kind of a racial unity symbol, right? Like everybody the same water fountain and Kelly pulls me and she's like, Hey, look under this stairwell. And there was the water fountain uh, for colored people, right? Like with this, (laughs) she was like, so that's that. And that's that. And uh, we're not going to talk about this. (laughs) Wow. Be friends with someone who has like done that work. And it teaches me a lot about our own history and particularly the ways like we use the symbols in the community to support a particular narrative, right? That we actually use these symbols sometimes to erase history rather than like bring it to life or to remember it well. Yeah, Alan, I really appreciate all of that. The transparency of the conversation, that's really, really helpful. And I think your point about relationship and conversation being critical in the healing of race issues in our nation is absolutely on point. And not just in rural communities, but any community, that it's easy. And I'm speaking for myself as a privileged white male. It was easy for me to dismiss narratives that didn't fit the history that I'd been taught. And it wasn't until I developed relationships with people and saw the emotional impact that my empathy was able to activate and to say, okay, well, regardless of what I was taught and right or wrong, true or false about that, there's real trauma and damage that has been done that needs to be addressed regardless of the story. And the stories of the people in front of us are honestly the most important stories that we should pay attention to. So thank you for naming that. And let me, if that's okay for me to say one more thing, I think one of the strengths of the rural community is how small we are. And so if, if someone like me, who's like a privileged white guy can actually be a little bit more courageous, like they should be, it's actually fairly easy to talk to people, right? Cause I work with our mayor, right? Like I, I go to church with the city council members and I'm like, I see everybody every day. So there's actually, I think a lot of opportunity to have these conversations once you know the narrative. And so I think that's one of the pluses. 
when I was in Durham, you know, I never saw anybody who was an elected official. I live next door to one of our town council members. So you can actually kind of force the conversation in a rural place in a way that you might not be able to in other places. Hmm. As you, you know, think about the background that you bring in terms of your community development lens, the poli sci lens, and you look at the future of rural congregations, maybe even specifically in your community over the next five or 10 years, what most excites you about the potential that rural congregations have in those communities? I think if we can get away from a conversation about growth, there's a lot of opportunity to do some really cool things. Mm-hmm. So one of our programs, for instance, is we just launched it in the late fall and it's really starting to build now, but it's a rural health advocacy network. It's modeled on something that came out of Methodist Bonner Hospital in Memphis, the Congregational Healthcare Network, and we're adopting it for a rural space. And so basically what it is, is a way we have a lot of underinsured people here or mm-hmm. uninsured people. We are a state that has not had Medicaid expansion, which, you know, on a local context, like you can tangibly say that if we would expand Medicaid in Tennessee, we'd get an extra like $2 million a year for healthcare benefits to the local hospital. Instead, we don't have that. And people go and they're going to the emergency room really late or at the last minute, or they're not going at all. And that drives up poverty, that drives up economic disparity that drives up cost to healthcare, that lowers access to healthcare. Like it's this really vicious cycle. So what our program is doing, we're partnering with the hospital so that, and we're doing this in churches and we're training these lay advocates who, when somebody comes out of the hospital or they're entering into the healthcare process to go to the hospital, go to the doctor for something, we'll give them an advocate who just kind of walks beside them. They're trained, but like they're not healthcare professionals. They're not going to help negotiate your insurance for you. But they are able to say, hey, you need to go to the doctor for this. Or if you're calling me, you should probably call your doctor. Or, you know, did you take your medication? Do you need help paying for medication? Did you know about this copay program? Whatever it is. And we can give them the resources to do that. And what we found is that if you can get, there's kind of three barriers that we're trying to overcome. And so one is preventative care, right? So making sure people are aware of something before it happens and know how to practice good things. The second is getting people to the right doctor at the right time. So we have a huge issue of people going to the emergency room at the last minute when it's a catastrophic thing. And that's dangerous for a lot of reasons. One, because like if you go into the doctor much earlier, it would have been a much smaller bill. There's probably patient assistance for it. And we could have prevented the catastrophic event that took you to the emergency room. Or in another case, we have several people who don't have OB care. And so they'll show up at the emergency room seven months pregnant with something that had they gone to our OB earlier in the pregnancy, like we could have prevented it altogether. And now we're risking like losing the baby and the mother and it's really expensive. So if you can get people to the right doctor at the right time, you can actually have healthier outcomes and lower the cost of healthcare to the patient and to the provider. And then making sure people go to their follow-up appointments, right? Like, and take their medication. Those are really simple things. And rural communities, if you need a ride to the doctor, there's no public infrastructure you're probably going to call someone from your church. So this is something like any rural church could do, whether you're a large church or a small church, like one of our advocates, all they do is text their patient every day and say, Hey, it's 2 PM. Have you taken your medication yet? Like that's an easy thing to do. So I think like programs like that are really interesting. We had a rural church down here. Broadband's a big issue. Once you get outside of the town, we have fiber in town and then in the County, we do not have fiber or really internet access, (laughs) except for some small pockets. One of the churches, his idea, and we're working on how to make it happen, 
is to buy routers like Wi-Fi routers for all the churches that do have access. And with the understanding that if we do that, they have to open up their parking lots or a Sunday school classroom to students who are doing virtual school right now. Mm. So these are not expensive things. They're not really that complicated, but they can actually fundamentally change the community. And then the last thing I would say, and this is like on this kind of narrative of like the church doing this kind of work. In North Carolina, they do a lot of like literacy programs through rural churches. And their results have actually been better than the state organized programs, like the summer school programs and increasing literacy gains. Because when students go to a local church and learn how to read, they're getting like one-on-one attention, but they're also forming mentorships and relationships with people who are interested more than just their education, right? So they're interested in like what happens when you go home and they might not have been exposed to where some of the kids are coming from. It's really easy to hide poverty in rural places. You just don't go to certain parts of the rural areas. So they're like seeing that. And then the church is kind of saying like, okay, we're really glad we taught you how to read this summer. Also, we'd like to take care of your family. right? <laughs> like we'd like to really help you guys out because we've grown very fond of your children. So you have this like longer term relationship that can form through those programs in a way they can't form in the classroom or like a state program. And like, again, those are not expensive things. I gave a grant to a rural church, a three point charge who their entire goal with a thousand dollars is to move a family out of homelessness in six months. And they did it. Like they took a family, they adopted the family, they put them in an apartment and got them a job. Like it was a thousand dollars. It was the best money I've ever spent. <laughs> like, <laughs> like that was, this is amazing things that you can do for dirt cheap because you have all these gifts of the church kind of pulled together. So I'll stop talking now and stop rambling. No, it's good. For those that may not understand or know much about rural communities, Alan, can you explain what a three-point charge is? Yes. So a three-point charge, at least in the Methodist church, are these are churches that cannot afford a full or a part-time pastor by themselves. So they'll kind of clump two or three or four churches into what we call a charge. So they operate as like a organizational unit. The churches are still independent of each other. They have their own culture, their own worship life. They just kind of share a pastor. They share the cost of a pastor and the management of the pastor. So when I say like a three-point charge, there's a lot of underneath that. So she got all of her churches actually to cooperate together, which is really exciting. Um, And then got them to do this project. So yeah, it's just a multitude of churches. Yeah. Thank you for that. As we round out our time here, Alan, where can people find you or your work or learn more about what's happening in congregations around your area? So our website is cultivaterural.com and all my contact information is up there. If people want to email me, we have a resource page where we give some stuff about like reframing the rural narrative and how rural churches can rethink their own goals and strategies, resources for asset-based community development, all sorts of things that they can go on there. And then people are welcome to email me. My email address is on the website. So just click there and shoot me an email. And I'm always happy to talk. If you feel like following me on Twitter, my handle is at AT Stanton. And I tweet about rural things a lot. So, so you've been warned. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they follow me sometimes and they're like, hey, you really only talk about rural stuff. And I'm like, yeah, that's kind of what I do. <laughs> that's amazing. And for anyone listening, you know, he's given out his email address and he's serious about that, just like we give out ours. And we're serious about it, although no one seems to take us seriously. Right. It's a shame. <laughs> Every now and then, and it'll be like, hey, I need help with this. I'm so excited. I'm like, yes. <laughs> like, that's what we're here for. And then I feel like I have to shamelessly promote it, but 
I have a book coming out in May called Reclaiming Rural. It's through Roman and Littlefield. And we talk a lot about the narrative of the rural church and how the rural churches can define their role in the community. So hope that's helpful for people. Yeah, thank you for that, Alan. We'll make sure all of those resources and the link to the book make it into our show notes. So anyone who's listening to this podcast, if you find it on Spotify or iTunes, you can check it out there, or you can go to our website, centerforcongregations.org slash podcasts, and we'll have that information posted up there as well if you want to do a little bit more of the journey on resources around rural congregations. So Alan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your service in rural congregations and communities. We very much appreciate it. This has been a really, really helpful conversation, and I think our audience will find it that way as well. So thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. a lot during the conversation we just had with Alan and listening back through it again one of the things that really stood out to me is this idea that in rural communities congregations are some of the only permanent institutions and I had never considered that before but to Alan's point with hospitals declining schools coming and going banks coming and going congregations are pretty long-standing. So thinking about congregations as a way to acclimate new community members to the community, as a way to hold at least a version of a community's history and as a place of learning, that's a really vital role in the life of any community, any place. And you know, I think it's important to honor that rural congregations sit in that role uniquely, and they're uniquely situated to do that work. Yeah, and I loved also, along with just that comment in general, how much it came through of what a big fan he is of rural congregations and how much promise he sees in them. Mm -hmm. I hope that anyone who's from a rural congregation who listened to that just came away feeling like a million bucks because of the possibilities that there are. And, you know, I, I wonder also with this idea of anchor institutions, as suburban and even sometimes urban congregations struggle with relevance, I wonder if they're still wrestling with the loss of being anchor institutions in their context. Because I think probably in the 50s and earlier, it was true for all congregations that they were a staple and anchor institution in their communities. But it's just not the case anymore. And especially with the rise of the nuns and those spiritual but not religious, and you know they might find a little bit of their spiritual expression in congregations, but maybe finding it elsewhere. You know That leads me into thinking about when he said, rural congregations need to know the demographic shifts in their community. And something that surprised me was hearing about retirees moving out to the country because of cost of living and all those kinds of things and how there's an influx of older people, but that's not a bad thing. They need congregations to serve them as well. And I actually heard someone say at one point that they knew of a congregation that had decided to become one of the best boomer-serving congregations they could be and really grew well in that way that they, you know, had a specific demographic of people that they decided they were going to focus on. And, you know, something I think younger listeners may not understand, and it's something I'm understanding as I grow older, that I had this fiction that once you hit, you know, your 30s, you're kind of stable, almost stagnant, that you don't really change much. And it's not true. Human beings change throughout their lifespans. And I think sometimes the focus on young people can be a bit misguided because older people still need congregational community. They still change, they still grow, and they need to grow, they need to serve. 
And it was exciting to me to hear about rural congregations having that opportunity in a unique way. Agreed. And I appreciated this idea of helping retirees find their next vocation, right? Helping them learn the geography, the social political geography of a place and helping them figure out, you know, where their passion lies within the context of a particular community. And that seems like such a rich and beautiful service to offer and and a, a unique way to come alongside people that are transitioning into the latter phases of life and transitioning into a new place, a new community to be able to join them in that vocation visioning, if you will. And so, Again, it was just for me a way that I had never quite imagined congregations operating, let alone small rural congregations. I don't know. I think there is a beauty that was captured in that for me as I imagine it and a unique way of walking with people in a particular phase of life that I think often gets overlooked and forgotten. And so the fact that rural congregations have the opportunity, I mean, really most congregations have this opportunity, but that it might be particularly salient for rural congregations was a really cool point that Alan brought out. Yeah, and along with that idea of knowing the demographic shifts and how he encourages rural pastors and rural congregations to do that, I think that's true of all congregations, that you may have a desire for a population of people that don't exist in your area, that you might be living in a space that there aren't many millennials whatsoever, and so to try to get a thriving millennial ministry may be misguided just based on the demographics. And also knowing demographics can help you know what needs you need to meet in your community. That do you have a very high volume of people with young children in your community? And if so, you would think that you would want to shift your congregation's focus a little bit, at least in terms of what you offer, offering childcare and things like that. So just that basic knowledge can be really helpful. And there are ways to do that. We'll actually share some of that in the resources section to think about demographics in your community. You know, when Alan was talking about rural congregations, it wasn't all rosy. You know, there was a turn that kind of got taken where we started delving into what it meant to honestly and accurately tell the story and hear the story of a place and a community. And again, truly appreciated his honesty in that, you know, he named the struggles that rural congregations can have in holding a particular version of a place's history, especially the say in Indiana, where most of these rural communities are predominantly white, though that's shifting some, it's still largely the case. You can have a whitewashed, a literally whitewashed version of a community's history, you know, in which you may tell most of the truth, but you do it in such a way that really eliminates or leaves out some of the more troublesome parts, even the horrific parts, or it leaves out the perspective of those that were excluded and pushed to the side or pushed out of the community or worse even. And so I love that we got there and we spent a good amount of time in the interview talking about what it means to honestly tell the story of a place and to hold the troublesome parts of that story along with the beautiful parts together and then to think about how we move forward from that. And I'm wondering how that all landed with you as you participated. Yeah, I've often wondered about that as we work with congregations and as the center has chosen to focus a little bit in terms of education and podcasting on racial justice issues. I've wondered how that impacts or affects congregations in places where the demographics aren't as diverse. So I was actually wanting to ask Alan about that, and it came up very naturally, and I really appreciated the conversation. And I think what it taught me was the importance of being honest about history and being honest about your past. And it makes me think of, from a Christian perspective anyway, our sacred texts of the Old and the New Testament, and especially the Jewish scriptures, where they don't pull punches, that the authors of that text 
put out the failures of the individuals and of the community, and they just lay it out there. And I think it's a way of making sure that they didn't forget those places where they were unfaithful to the things that they said they wanted to be faithful to. And I think we struggle with that. The faith tradition that I'm from, we very much were about personal confession, you know, things that went wrong in our lives, but I really don't remember a very rich history of communal confession and confessing how, as a community or as an organization or group, we had failed each other, how we had failed society around us. And I wonder about recovering a practice of confession that includes those kinds of things to lay bare those things that we know but just don't want to talk about. Mm-hmm. Because I found personally that talking about my struggles and my issues publicly removes the sting of that and removes the stigma. It enables me to embrace myself for who I am. And I'm sure that has to be true at a larger congregational level as well, that when you're honest as a congregation about your failings, you're able to embrace those and fold those into your sense of identity and walk forward in greater strength as opposed to, you know, we all worry about things that are hidden, right? And those things that we don't tell other people, those failures that we know about that no one else does, and when we don't confess, those things hang over our heads. And I just wonder how much freer communities could walk in the world if they would be serious about uh, where they've come up short. Yeah, and I think we have this misperception that confession needs to be about the other party, you know, that was wronged or the other party involved. And while Mm. there may be some relational redemption that can take place when that happens— Honestly, I think most of what confession is about is about ourselves, to your point, Matt. It's about being able and willing to see ourselves, our communities, as we are, and being able and willing to hold, again, the problematic aspects of who we are and where we've come from, the beautiful, wonderful aspects of who we are and where we come from, and recognize that all of that exists together all of the time, whether we pretend it does or not. And once we can actually name it honestly for ourselves— maybe before God, then we can begin to actually have a conversation about what it means to be in relationship with the other, what it means to move forward and to live more deeply into the vision of who we want to be as people, who we want to be as a congregation, who we want to be as a community in relationships with other parts of creation. But unless and until we honestly engage in this notion, this idea, this practice of confession, I think we're always going to show up as pieces of ourself and then our impact, our effectiveness, our efficacy is going to be limited. And honestly, just our existence is going to be limited if we're being real. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point, Ben, that there's just such great strength in telling the truth about ourselves. Telling the truth about ourselves. Yes. You know, we could spend more time here, but the interview's already been rich enough. We've had plenty of conversation. And, and so it might be beneficial to talk about some resources that we feel supplement the content that Alan was able to bring out today. So you know, I'll kick it off. One of the resources that I found that seems a bit unusual, but I think is intriguing, is the American Community Gardening Association. Now, if I'm being honest, until about 20 minutes ago, I had no idea this was on the CRG, like literally no clue. (laughs) But I was pleasantly surprised to discover it. And I think it could be really useful for those that are working in rural congregations. So the American Community Gardening Association is an organization that provides online resources and in-person services for food and gardening, urban forestry and land preservation. And as we think about places, organizations, businesses moving into and out of rural communities, 
to me, that means that there may not always be a high quality grocery store option, you know, within 20 or 30 minutes of a particular community. And so gardening can be a very useful practice. So I pulled this resource out because I think it's something that congregations can learn from whether they want to assist and educate their members and how to better cultivate their own individual gardens or their family gardens, or whether the congregation has the ability and the resources to have their own community garden right there on their grounds and property of the congregation. This could be a very useful way to meet an immediate need for fresh food, for high quality food for a particular community, and to help educate people on the proper practices of growing their own food to help create a more sustainable, healthier way of living when those resources aren't available or are constantly moving into and out of a community. So check out the American Community Gardening Association. That was a resource that I was not expecting. <laughs> yeah, me either. <laughs> me either. No, that's really great. And I think that one of the things that we've encountered in our work is congregations of all types in all geographic contexts that are interested in that idea, all the way from urban, all the way out to rural. So yeah, that's a really cool resource. And by the way, if anyone is curious about that or if that's something that your congregation has thought about or talked about, we've actually had a number of congregations that we've interfaced with that have worked through those things that we can get you in contact with as a conversation partner. So thanks for bringing that, Ben. Yeah, of course. What you got for us today? So I wanted to follow up on the demographic information, and I want to highlight the Association of Religion Data Archives, or ARDA. And you can go to the website. We'll have it listed in the show notes, but it's thearda.com, T-H-E-A-R-D-A.com. And they have all kinds of demographic information from all across the country. It's very well funded by a number of foundations and endowments. But what I want to highlight specifically is if you go to that page, there's a maps section that you can click on. And this is where I wish podcasting was a visual medium because (laughs) I could walk everybody through this. But if you click on the maps section and put in your zip code, it takes you to a tool where you can put in a radius and then you can click on profile and it gives you census data for that region. So you can put your congregation's physical address in and see who's in five miles of you, what the education level is, what the age demographics are, what some of the ethnic demographics are. So it's a really helpful tool if you just want to get a sense of who's in your immediate vicinity, who's around you and may help you kind of think about tweaking or refining what you offer and how you think about yourself as a congregational community in your physical location. I really like that. One, because if you're someone who loves statistics and data, ARDA has plenty of it for you, and so you'll just have fun doing the deep dive. But also, I think it gives us a chance to return to this idea of storying. You know, when you're looking at the hard and fast data of who is actually within a 5 or 10 mile radius of your congregation, who is and isn't in your community, then you have a chance to rethink the stories that you're telling and thus rethink Hmm. how you're existing in that community and the story you're holding about the services that you're offering or the function and role that you're playing in your community. And so I think data can help us step into this idea of restoring or looking more truthfully at the narratives we hold. Yeah, that's a great point, Ben. Yeah, the other resource that I was going to bring is called Big Lessons from Little Places. It's a book by Kay McLaughlin. This is a book specifically focused on small congregations. It's fighting back at this narrative that if your congregation doesn't have a Sunday attendance of at least 200 people, you should close the doors. It's saying, no, that's a a scarcity model, a scarcity mindset. And actually, if we take a look 
at the roles, possibilities, and potential of being a small church, we can learn a lot. And so the author takes the back roads and byways of the United States and visits small churches who are making a difference in their community and then shares a story about something that she observed. And so it's just a quick little snippet Little vignettes, if you will, narrative vignettes of the good things that are happening in small congregations across the United States. And so if you're looking for some encouragement or some narratives and anecdotes to kind of push back against that scarcity mindset in your own communities or among your own leadership teams, this might be a good resource for you. Yeah, thanks, Ben. A lot of the books that I've read around rural congregational ministry have such important and interesting stories in them. And it sounds like this one is similar in that vein. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you have any other ones that you wanted to bring today? Yeah, I want to talk about the Rural Ministry Conference. Uh, It's put on by Wartburg Theological Seminary, or if you're German, Wartburg Theological Seminary. It's out of the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America tradition, and I did double-check with the pandemic. Of course, conferences have been a bit sketchy, but they are listed to do an event in 2022, and it looks like something that's been going on for quite some time. And it's actually out of their Center for Theology and Land, which is a really interesting name for a center. And I would imagine that it connects very well to the idea of rural congregations. But just anyone interested in getting together with other practitioners, of course, you know, you would want to make sure that it's a good theological fit for you. You'd want to check out the website and about the seminary, et cetera. But just keeping an eye on that as an option that might be something where you can go and meet with other practitioners in rural contexts and learn from experts in those spaces. That's pretty sweet. That's pretty sweet. I also appreciated your alternative German pronunciation for our large German listenership. So thank you for that, Matt. (laughs) (laughs) Why, thank you. Uh, And we also, we'd be remiss not to point out the additional work of our guest today, Alan Stanton. Yes. If you go to faithandleadership.com, you can find a series of blogs that he has posted writing about the small church, particularly during the pandemic. And so that's a great place to find more information And he also has a book called Reclaiming Rural. Um, We encourage you to just check it out. And I don't have the synopsis in front of me. Do you have it that you could share, Matt? Yeah, well, the subtitle is Building Thriving Rural Congregations. And it's just, you know, similar to the things that Alan spoke about during our interview. It's just unpacking a bit more of how rural congregations can be anchors in their community and places where people can come and join a community where they can thrive. Yeah, so please, if you get a chance, order that book hear more of Alan's insight on how rural congregations can thrive as anchor institutions in their communities. Check out faithandleadership.com where his blog posts are and just generally follow him on social media. He's got good things to say. He's constantly thinking about this intersection, this like socio-theological intersection of how rural congregations can meet the practical needs of their communities. I think you heard some of that in our interview. And so I imagine that if you're someone for whom rural communities are on your heart, you're serving them, living in them, working in them day in and day out, you're going to find a great thought partner in Alan Staten and in the work that he's putting out. All right. Well, we hope you'll check out those resources. And as always, check out the CRG, T-H-E-C-R-G dot org for all of the different resources that the Center for Congregations has identified that we think may be useful. But you can find all kinds of different resources. You can also contact us via the CRG. There's a little area in the lower right-hand corner that you can chat, and you might actually even chat with my co-host, Ben Tapper. It's highly unlikely, but it is in theory possible. (laughs) Uh, Also, be sure to follow us on social media, Facebook and Instagram at the Center for Congregations. We put out teasers of our podcast episodes, information about education events, 
and information about resources along with congregational stories and highlights. So if you just want to kind of get a quick snapshot of what we're doing or the good work that congregations in Indiana are doing, follow us on social media. And as always, please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star rating and a review. That is the fastest way for new listeners to find this information and to find the resources that you are currently benefiting from. So take a moment, leave us that five-star rating, and a big thank you to those that have already done that. We appreciate it. And just a reminder that we have an inbox at podcast at centerforcongregations.org. The podcast inbox let me know that it's very lonely and still has yet to receive any email. So it would really, really like to hear from you. Yeah, that just tells me that no one listens to the end of these things. That's that's what I'm gleaning <laughs> from that. So, yeah, let's do an experiment. If you're still listening at this point, if you will just email us banana, just email banana, and we'll know that you actually listened all the way through as a little experiment. I like it, banana. As always, we want to offer gratitude for the funding that the Lilly Endowment provides that makes services like this podcast possible and allows us to do the work that we do to serve Indiana congregations and congregations across the U.S. So we appreciate that. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much, Ben. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We hope to see Banana in our inbox, and we'll see you next time. See y'all.